Profiles and Strategy, a podcast series of talks by the U.S. Naval War College Strategy and Policy Department. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views of the Naval War College or the United States. Hello and welcome everyone to Profiles and Strategy. This is uh, episode 31, uh, China Policy, uh, ours and theirs. I'm Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps, your host uh, from the Strategy and Policy Department of the U.S. Naval War College. Joining me today, some of my colleagues. First, a colleague from the Strategy and Policy Department, Dr. Andrew, a.k.a. Dex Wilson. Welcome. Hi, John. Next. Thank you. Um, next, a, uh, a colleague from the National Security Affairs Department, Dr. Paul Smith, China Hi. expert. Welcome, Paul. Thank you nice for being to see here. You. And, uh, and last but certainly not least, uh, Dr. Colin Jackson, who is the uh, chair of um, the Strategic and Operational Research uh, Department here at the, at the U.S. Naval War College and a former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Central Asia. Welcome, Colin. Thanks for having me. All right, so um, thought, we'd, uh, thought we'd start out today uh, talking about the, seeing as though the, the rhetoric seems to be heating up, this is topical between China and the US. Um, so Paul, can you kind of give us the, um, you know, we should, uh, we should have most of the, the background uh, of the story, but what is, since, since you know things went uh, the way they did um, uh, in 1949, what has been the policy, the U.S. policy towards Taiwan? Well, what has been the U.S. policy toward Taiwan was that Taiwan from 1950 and then subsequently 1954 became an ally, and so we had an alliance relationship with Taiwan, which lasted until 1979. And so after that, we have a law called the Taiwan Relations Act, which governs uh, U.S.-Taiwan uh, interactions. The best articulation of U.S. policy toward Taiwan, I believe, was put together by James Kelly, Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs back in the Bush administration. And he delivered this on April 21st, 2004. And so he basically articulated certain core principles of our policy. And I'll, I'll just try to summarize them. Uh, one is that we are committed to a one policy, China policy based on the three joint communiques in the Taiwan Relations Act, which I just mentioned. We do not support independence for Taiwan or unilateral moves that would change the status quo as we define it. For Beijing, this means no use of force or threat to use force against Taiwan. For Taipei, it means exercising prudence and managing all aspects of cross-strait relations. For both sides, it means no statements or actions that would unilaterally alter Taiwan's status. And as part of the Taiwan Relations Act, the U.S. will continue to sail appropriate defensive military equipment uh, to Taiwan. And then finally, viewing any use of force against Taiwan with, with grave concern, the United States will maintain capacity to resist any resort to force or other forms of coercion against Taiwan. So that's right now, we, we basically have an unofficial, semi-official relationship with Taiwan. And um, that has been generally our policy um, basically up until now, although there's been some, <laughs> some adjustments, it seems, so we can get into that later. Yeah, okay. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Dex, anything to add on, uh, on this one? Yeah, I, I would just point out that, um, you know, Paul just mentioned that that, that, was, that was articulated back in 2004, and, and, a, and a lot has changed since 2004. Um, the military balance across the Taiwan Strait has changed uh, radically since, since that period. Um, so the, the Chinese are, are much more militarily capable. Um, their, their policy um, has not radically changed, uh, I think, but they're, they're, you know, in terms of the way they see China as a, uh, sorry, see Taiwan as a core national interest, uh, that, that has been pretty consistent over the course of, of uh, uh, decades. But now we're, we're running into a position where the Chinese is, are far more operationally capable. And when, you know, 
20 years ago when uh, an operational solution to a Taiwan scenario seemed pretty remote uh, for the Chinese military, that, that circumstance has changed uh, pretty dramatically. So I'm not advocating a change in our policy, but we need to, need to address the fact that uh, circumstances have changed and the, uh, the military balances has been fundamentally altered over that period. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Okay, thank you, Dex. Uh, Colin, as a, as a former Dazen, as we would say, in the for those of us that have served at the Pentagon, what was the what what was the perspective, and what is the perspective now? Do you think? So I think uh, I would agree with my colleagues that the nominal policies have remained studiously unchanged, but behind the scenes, as, as Dex points out, the military balance has shifted dramatically, and I think equally important, there's a growing bipartisan elite consensus that says. The magnitude of the China challenge is such that this is the new focal point of U.S. foreign policy and U.S. defense policy. Um, this would be mostly a good thing, I think, were it not for sort of two corollaries, which are more disturbing. One, that there's largely sort of popular indifference on the question of uh, Taiwan narrowly or the China challenge more broadly. While I think people have a relatively dim view of China, they don't see the link between the China challenge and what they may be asked to sacrifice in terms of blood or treasure. Uh, the second one is that while you have bipartisan elite consensus on the importance of the China challenge, the significance of the, the narrow threat to Taiwan, uh, the US defense budget simply doesn't match the magnitude of the challenge. And so while we're seeing other partners, notably the Japanese who for years stuck to a 1% of GDP limit as part of their sort of defensive orientation, have now committed to double defense spending uh, in one of the largest economies on the planet. We are looking at uh, real-time or real declines in U.S. defense spending this year and in the out years. So the disconnect between all the good things we're saying in a bipartisan way at the elite level, and on the one hand, popular indifference, at the other level, uh, inadequate resourcing, means that I think we're kind of in an unstable position in terms of uh, ambitions and capabilities. Mm -hmm. mm. So, so since you uh, since you went that since you went there, open that door. Uh, we'll go a little bit out of order here in the question list, but um, the concept of value of the object, the Clausewitzian concept that we yeah. uh, that we talk about here, um, you know, ours and theirs. So you just said it's it's low for us, but what would you for? Well, for I, I wouldn't say it's low for us. I, I would say that the popular understanding uh, is limited. Of, of what Taiwan is, why it matters, why even the China challenge matters to the United States. That's different than saying that the value of the object, either intrinsic or extrinsic, is low. Um, I think the intrinsic value of the object has to do with its significance um, in the chip manufacturing industry, for one thing. Uh, we look at sort of roughly between 20 and 25% of world trade is in consumer electronics. We got a preview of this during COVID that when you disrupt key supply chains for high-end chips, the vast majority of which are produced ironically on the island of Taiwan by TSMC. Um, you find parking lots full of half-completed vehicles, problems producing iPhones, computers, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, Taiwan's centrality in the consumer electronics business uh, is one piece of its intrinsic value. I think the extrinsic value is far greater. That is, why does Taiwan matter to the United States outside of Taiwan or uh, not with respect to, to the island itself. And that is one, its significance in a struggle for hegemony in the Pacific and perhaps globally. Uh, I think people see that a struggle which the United States or China lost would be dispositive in terms of this hegemonic uh, succession problem. Um, and I think certainly the neighbors uh, in the region see it this way, uh, that US actions over the Taiwan issue will be interpreted uh, to trigger either bandwagoning or balancing uh, by Asian partners and allies. So there's a lot at stake uh, from the American point of view in Taiwan, and I don't think this is a misperception. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, so um, Dex, anything from the, maybe from the Chinese perspective on, on the value of the object? Yeah, I, th I think the um, part of the, the, the Chinese information operation uh, both uh, internationally and domestically, is to uh, push the idea that the value of Taiwan um, as an integral part of China, as a core national interest, is essentially infinite. Uh, and that there no, no price will not be paid, no burden will not be borne. 
so the magnitude and duration of the effort that uh, the Chinese state and that the Chinese people are willing to devote to, um, you know, uh, maintaining the status quo or responding to a, a radical change in the status quo by perhaps forces in Taiwan declaring independence or, or you know, some other sort of crisis scenario that, uh, you know, there is the, in terms of an information operation, is this is one way to maintain, you know, uh, regime legitimacy in China, uh, that only the one-party state, only the the people's, only the Chinese Communist Party and the People's Army, the party's army, uh, are the only forces keeping uh, Taiwan uh, from from spinning off, uh, defending against you know this latest effort to partition China by outside powers relating back to the century of humiliation. But also information operations since you know these United States, because back in 1996, when we intervened in a Taiwan Straits scenario, the costs for the United States were, were very, very low. We sorted two carrier strike groups to the region, sent a very unambiguous signal, um, basically demonstrated to Beijing that we could intervene anytime, anywhere uh, that we wanted. Um, so ever since then, the, the Chinese operational development military modernizations have been all about problematizing the ease of that intervention to uh, present us with the likelihood that the United States military um, and you know uh, not just uh, in the waters off Taiwan but in the region or potentially even the uh, um, homeland uh, would be under threat uh, that the Chinese military has the increasing capability to in inflict exceedingly high costs on the United States. And therefore, that would stay our hand in a crisis, because you know our rational calculus does not go that far, right? You know, the object is valuable to us, but not of sufficient value to tolerate the magnitude and duration of of costs in blood and treasure that would come from a hot uh, uh, from active uh, military action uh, in in a Taiwan Strait scenario. So the idea there that. The, the Chinese sort of going into this have a value, the value object advantage uh, over the United States. Uh, and I think that is part of the conversation that Colin was, was mentioning that we have to have in the United States, because I personally feel that there's a very high value the object of Taiwan, uh, both intrinsic and extrinsic. Uh, and I think we need to be able to articulate that, that the value of the object is, is high for us. Um, and that we also have to, uh, you know, it's hard to crack through the, the narrative in Beijing, um, but they are well aware that, um, you know, re regime legitimacy, you know, in an authoritarian system travels uh, farther in the face of, of military uh, defeat, as we say, or at least lack of military success, as we see in Ukraine, mm -hmm. but it is not infinite. Yeah, that's a great point. Paul, you've, you've lived in, in Taiwan Yes, two years, different years. Um, um, so it was quite an experience. I just want to, uh, just based on what we're talking about, just frame it in a slightly different way. I always tell my students this, that we have an asymmetric situation in the sense that uh, China wants, it's not like the, the uh, state of Jammu Kashmir with India, Pakistan, wanting a single place and they, they're fighting over it. It's not like that. It, it's China wants Taiwan, the piece of real estate known as Taiwan. Okay, they want to acquire Taiwan or reacquire and reintegrate it. Okay, that's number one. Two, the U.S. ever since President Truman, ever since he deployed the Seventh Fleet in the Taiwan Strait, has made it clear we are not seeking to acquire Taiwan. We're not seeking to make Taiwan the 51st state of the United States. We're not trying to make it a U.S. territory. We don't have any possession intent on Taiwan. Um, our interest is reputational in nature because we have a commitment to Taiwan to prevent forcible takeover from the mainland. And that reputation is very valuable because the reputation, it, it's, um, it's, it's somewhat uh, difficult to uh, put in concrete terms, but basically it applies to our allies, it applies to our other commitments. So if we sort of abandon Taiwan, that in and of itself would have a terrific cost in the long term. It would affect our alliances with Japan, South Korea, et cetera. So this is the problem. So it's an asymmetric situation because we we don't necessarily want the same thing. So it's, it makes it even more complicated. But they're both very valuable from PRC's per perspective. 
from our perspective and frankly from Taiwan's perspective we haven't talked about Taiwan <laughs> they have their interests as well so just no, want please to please go go ahead Paul like what what so the Taiwanese especially after what happened with Hong Kong in the <laughs> in the last couple of yeah months. well I, th I think the Taiwan issue boils down to two trends one is democratization and second is even more important is Taiwanization and to understand this you have to go back to the history and look at what happened in the 1940s you had the nationalists basically Chinese mainlanders came over and they instituted or they put into place a very authoritarian government and actually had a terror <laughs> action go oh, it's known as the white terror happening that was our free china so to speak uh that lasted until the late 1980s and then martial law was lifted and then democratization took place so you have a democratization trend but you also have taiwanization and generational trend meaning that the taiwanese um known as used to be known as Ban Shengren in Taiwan, have a strong sense of their own identity now. And their identity does not necessarily include China. And so and so basically, I think the general thinking in the US was that over time, the, the economies of the two sides would equalize and they would, they would have cross-investment, interdependence, and eventually the, the, the whole problem would sort itself out. That's what we were hoping. The problem is time has worked against us because as time has gone by, you have increasing Taiwan identity taking root. And it's very difficult to overcome that. So this is, uh, I don't think the PRC, I, I don't think mainland officials really understand this dynamic uh, because I lived, I didn't live in, I lived in Taipei for a part of the time I was in Taiwan, but I lived in Taichung, another part. And by living in Taichung, I really felt that sense of Taiwanese identity. It is such a powerful force. And it greatly complicates our ability to resolve this issue because we're kind of stuck. Uh, how, do, how do we go forward? Because ideally, according to our policy, we're hoping that the two sides will resolve and come to a mutually uh, amicable, uh, some sort of arrangement. It doesn't have to be the t Hong Kong arrangement because that's somewhat uh, not ideal, but something else and but yet at the same time Taiwanese have very little incentive to go in that direction because of identity so mm -hmm. I think we you know we can think like a realist but also you have to think like a constructivist as well in terms of identity and how that's so powerful and also mm -hmm. on top of that on the Chinese side you have Chinese nationalism and that's another <laughs> accelerant <laughs> that just can throw on top of it I'll, I'll stop there yeah interesting point Dex go ahead yeah, uh, that's a great point that, that Paul ended, well, many great points, but the one you ended with is, is yeah, I mean, the, a, a, a big part of Chinese nationalism uh, and what we might call Han chauvinism, uh, Han being the ethnicity of, of the vast majority of people in the People's Republic of China, is this concept of consanguinity, which is we, we, we are Chinese because we are Chinese. Um, you know, therefore, the people in Taiwan, it's inconceivable for them to be Chinese, but and not think of themselves as naturally part of a Beijing-centered polity. Mm -hmm. Right. This this is a concept that 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 travels around the world as well. This idea that Chinese everywhere are part of a of a Chinese body politic, uh, as it were. So this is these are mutually inconceivable notions that you can be Taiwanese and have a strong Chinese heritage, uh, but be something that's not Chinese. Um, that's just inconceivable. Uh, from, a, from a mainland perspective. It also feeds into, um, and again, this goes back to the century of humiliation where, where there's sort of hard bake into uh, the, the conception of China's relations with the outside world is that there are overt and covert efforts to undermine Chinese sovereignty and Chinese territorial integrity and Chinese power. Uh, these goes, goes, goes back uh, uh, decades, if not over more than two centuries, um, but it's also crystallized in the more recent hostility, and you see this in Moscow as well, towards color revolutions mm. um, and the concept of peaceful evolution uh, articulated in the United States back in the 50s, that it is part of American grand strategy to covertly undermine uh, authoritarian regimes, to spread democracy, to spread political liberalization, uh, to spread American hegemony through clandestine means, through the CIA, through Voice of America, what have you. Uh, so the tendency is to see generational changes, cultural changes in a place like Taiwan, not as the spontaneous result of time passing, 
um, you know, uh, political systems becoming liberalized, you know, these are natural trends uh, that this is in fact not spontaneous. This is, this is a product of foreign machinations. Um, so the idea that the demonstrations in Hong Kong were not spontaneous, they were promoted and funded and directed by foreign actors, by the CIA, what have you. So uh, those two things play into this um, sense of, uh, of fear um, in Beijing about what is actually going on in Taiwan or distorts what is going on in Taiwan. And also results in totally wrongheaded approaches. Um, you know, we think about this, about information operations and the way that say the, um, you know, Russian influence operations in the United States during election periods or Chinese influence operations in, in general. Chinese influence operations in Taiwan have backfired massively. And if anything has accelerated the, the, the general hostility towards um, the mainland, uh, distrust in the mainland, compounding what, what Taiwanese saw going on in Hong Kong, um, that has just made the situation worse. Uh, so, you know, the Chinese, but that then, that too then plays into Beijing's narrative that this is something that is being pushed by the United States mm -hmm. and therefore is read when you see Nancy Pelosi go to Taiwan or you see Kevin McCarthy meet Tsai Ing-wen. Um, this is just this latest manifestation of how aggressively the United States is changing the rules when it comes to Taiwan and how Beijing tends to offshore responsibility for uh, negative trends in its foreign relations, you know, blaming the West as in the same ways that that Putin tends to blame the West. Some of this is is cynical, um, but I think the more dangerous thing is that this these are sincerely heartfelt beliefs about the the nature of the threat that that China confronts when it comes to this natural evolution of what's going on in Taiwan. Okay, um, so so Colin, I want to I want to shift the question to you. Um, so we've talked about the history and the value of the object here. Why now is this rhetoric all of a sudden, it seems like on both sides, starting to starting to spike here, do you think? Um, well, I, I would make reference to what, you know, Dex just said, that there are endogenous developments within Taiwan that are causing the two, uh, two uh, ethnically Chinese, at least in, in, in majority terms, uh, entities to drift apart rather than together. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, conscious change after the rise of Xi Jinping on Chinese foreign policy is the largest single change. Um, and it's expressed in a couple of ways, diplomatically as well as militarily. We've seen an unprecedented um, military development on the PRC side, sort of dating back to the 2012 timeframe. We've seen unilateral uh, seizure of disputed territories in the South China Sea, initial claims that they would not be militarized, then a complete abrogation of that overt militarization of the South China Sea uh, and the development of a set of capabilities which are really only uh, useful in a conflict with the United States and particularly in a conflict with the United States over Taiwan. So I, I think the reason things are heating up um, is, is sort of deliberate Chinese policy be the largest vector. Now I will say um, there, there, there's sort of a third strain and this is uh, this creates something of a paradox. The question is whether or not uh, the PRC's perception of rising strength is the is the core issue, or whether it's some curious mixture of rising strength, but also insecurities moving forward. Um, Hal Brands has written a, a book recently saying, you know, that you shouldn't be worried about rising powers; you should be worried about peaking powers, uh, powers that can foresee a peak in their capability and then uh, a decline. In this case, mostly for uh, demographic, but potentially also for some macroeconomic reasons, and so. I think this does make it a particularly heated period of time, uh, but the Chinese, whether it's because they're increasingly secure and self-confident or some mix of self-confidence and, and underlying insecurity moving forward are uh, increasingly bellicose. And it, this is not uh, just a words thing. I mean, what we see in the Pelosi visit, what we see in the wake of uh, the McCarthy meeting is you know, overt military action. Uh, this past summer, we saw missiles being fired over Taiwan. Uh, by the Chinese, that's a relatively unambiguous uh, threatening act. Um, and uh, the, the recent military maneuvers are very much in kind. So 
The gray zone activities, which are invisible to American audiences on a day-by-day -day basis, are incredibly visible to Taiwanese political audiences. And this is an attempt both to isolate Taiwan tangibly and to coerce the Chinese, or I'm sorry, the, uh, the, the Taiwanese political elites uh, and population into sort of accepting Chinese hegemony in some way, shape, or form. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. Thank you. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Paul. Just, I, I just want to add to those points that I think the other larger issue is the general degradation in U.S.-China relations that we've seen uh, since the probably the late period of the Obama administration with the rebalance and the pivot to Asia to, leading into the Trump administration and now into the Biden administration. It's been largely consistent. And this, to me, is the more troubling issue. And I, I don't have a magic answer or ingredients to try to lift us out of this. But this is, I think this is the larger problem. And so our, I, I, I characterize um, our relationship with China as it's all his, all his, no kiss. <laughs> and so <laughs> meaning that we are focused on the hawkish dimensions of the relationship. Uh, we're exhibiting the hawkish vibes as well as China exhibiting that to us. But we also need to have a sort of engagement side. I, I still think it, it's not a binary question. Um, there is still room for engagement. There are issues in which Washington and Beijing could find common ground. And I think we should not give that up and go strictly down this hawkish route because we are sleepwalking into a very serious conflict i'm afraid because we're not thinking thinking it through and the the federal u.s government uh, is not explaining to the american public what the implications of that could be because if we did have a conflict with china it would be basically a COVID crisis times 100 plus pearl harbor plus a few other disasters all in one it would be a tremendous tragedy and so I think we have to really think about that in the context. These these other issues are happening within that larger framework. So I just mm -hmm. put that point out. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great point. Uh, Dex, we'll go to you next. Yeah, I, I, I concur there. Um, I think it was Ryan Haas said a few weeks ago that um, being tough on China is, has become a political duct tape in uh, D.C. Um, so if you want to if you want to get anything done, if you want to get the chips bill passed, or do you want to get the anti-inflation legislation uh, passed, you, you slap a, a, a this is countering China uh, label on it. Uh, and that that gets you the bipartisan support. Uh, and yeah, it's become it's become, um, you know, fashionably to be just just infinitely hawkish on China. And I think absolutely this 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 is this is a loathsome regime with with uh, malevolent designs in a lot of ways. But it's also China represents 150 humanity, it's the second largest economy in the world. Um, it is a, it's a major trading partner, pretty much to, to, to everybody. Uh, it could it is it is it is a it's a it's a world historical force. Um, mm -hmm. It you know it cannot it cannot be denied. It cannot be misunderstood. It should not be misunderstood. Um, yeah. And I think, think Paul's right that, you know, the danger here of demonizing everything there is about China, or at least giving the impression that we're demonizing everything about China, uh, compounds uh, a tendency uh, in, you know, going on in China of increasingly negative views of the United States. Um, and a lot of this is perception. Uh, some of it is based on, um, you know, um, um, you know the 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 amount the types of information about the United States that that the the, the your common Chinese person is exposed to. Um, you know the the idea of the United States is a place where you know if you know it's it's dangerous. Everybody's toting a gun. School shootings are right and left. If you're if you're Asian American, you'll get a you know if you're Asian, you'll get attacked, harassed, or spied on, uh, what have you. Um, so these perceptions really are starting to lead to not just elite disaffection or hostility, uh, but more sort of fundamental hostility. Um, but still, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken is the most popular fast food uh, in China <laughs> and basketball is the most popular sport. Um, you know, they still, they'll say ping pong is still number one, but in terms of viewership, basketball still is, is uh, rules the roost. So there's a lot of Again, common ground, but there's also a lot of common humanity that we have to have to factor into the situation. Uh, China is not, you know, the Chinese Communist Party wields a, a level of power and control in China um, that's hard hard to 
uh, wrap one's head around, but it is not the entirety of China. Mm. Um, and it's not the entirety of our relationship with China or the Chinese people. So I think they're, 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 we, we, we need to sort of tone this down. We need to be vigilant when it comes to China. We have to understand clearly the, the, the threats, but also the opportunities for, you know, um, you know, standing by our moral principles when it comes to issues like Taiwan and our commitments to our other partners in the region, um, but also, you know, not not appeasing China, but but accepting the realities that that is China. Hmm. That, so that's a that's an interesting interesting point. Um, because yeah, you know, cultural affinity and and whatnot, and it doesn't seem like there's any type of natural uh, hatred between Chinese and Americans. I visited mm-hmm. China in 2005, obviously that's a while ago, but long as you walked in and said, you know, ni hao ma, they were like, oh, hey, Americans. And they, you know, so, um, but obviously they're ruled by the Chinese Communist Party, which as all Chinese, or as all communist parties around the world, you know, there's a, there's an agenda. Um, so we talked about policy um, so let's talk about before we get into strategy, um, rational calculus and and assessments. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Colin, you mentioned kind of a kind of a as a former S and P professor, you'll appreciate this, but kind of a like a a Kaiser's Germany in 1914, right? It's now or never. We've got the army, we've got the men, we've got to mm-hmm. go. Is that kind of what's going on with the CCP and, and Xi nowadays in terms of the, his his rhetoric is is heating up and saying we've got to you know this more um, aggressive um, uh, aggressive actions and, and aggressive rhetoric that you didn't really see under Deng or, or, or you know, um, a Hu Jintao or, or whatnot. Go, go ahead, Colin. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I do think I'm, I'm less attracted. I mean, we've got, we got two things going on. One is changes in rhetoric and, um, and at least uh, externally facing policy. But then we also have more disturbingly, the, the tangible things that the Chinese government is doing in terms of military development. And I would put greater weight on the latter, though the two are essentially additive. Um, we've seen an unprecedented military buildup. And whether you believe the Chinese public figures on defense spending, and I, I, I tend to doubt that that's the entirety of it, um, or, or it's a much, much larger number, what we're seeing is the development of a force which appears designed as Dex indicated to hold the United States at, at uh, a distance so that it can accomplish various geopolitical uh, aggressive moves in, in the region, particularly with respect to Taiwan. Um, you know, I, this is a, a profound change. It's as, as profound uh, as the economic development that preceded it. Uh, and I think it's hard to get around it. And, and this is why I would put sort of primary emphasis on where are the changes in the U.S. relationship coming from, where are the changes in the salience of Taiwan as an issue coming from. It's really primarily the PRC's military buildup combined with very aggressive noises on the diplomatic front that indicate to us this isn't something we can simply ignore or de-escalate. Um, I'd make one aside here tying into the previous conversation, which is, yes, there may be areas in which we can cooperate with China, but uh, buyer beware uh, would be my my advice. I think the Chinese government is is fully aware of the United States desire to address other issues that are completely outside the realm of the U.S.-China relationship, such as global warming. Uh, I think that they see this as a way to link these issues and get concessions uh, mm-hmm. on the security front, on the geopolitics front, in exchange for uh, playing nice with the United States on uh, other issues, including climate change. So I think we need to be very, very careful as we approach areas of engagement with uh, the PRC to make sure we're not being played on the security front uh, by our adversary uh, uh, pushing buttons uh, mm-hmm. in our domestic calculus. Okay. Um, Paul, we'll go to you next in this one. Yeah, just on uh, Colin's point about uh, China's def- uh, military buildup, it's absolutely true. And what I would argue is that the U.S. needs to correspondingly have a maintain its advantages, uh, work on next generation technologies. And you know, I fundamentally believe that if you, if you want to prevent war, you have to prepare for it. It's a paradox and you have mm-hmm. to maintain your strength. And so a future, this is going to really floor your audience, but a future 
uh, China-centered uh, Department of Defense budget is at a minimum $1 trillion per annum. Okay, wow. so we need to digest that. The American public needs to accept that. And secondly, I don't see any other way <laughs> that you can do this without raising uh, revenue, shall we say, uh, at some level at some point, because that's just the reality. So you you pay either pay up front, you pay later on. I, I think uh, if you explain it to the American public, I think they would be okay with paying slightly higher taxes to be able to afford a military that we need to have in order to face the issues that we're going to face in the coming decades. Mm, uh, this is why I can't run for office. Because yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody will vote for me. <laughs> I, I, I do want to ask a follow-up question on that, but but uh, Dex, we'll go to you next. For I, I would just say that trillion dollars is a lot cheaper than several years of a global economic depression. Mm, um, mm. Yeah. which which would be the likely consequences of a, a major conflict over Taiwan, uh, if, if only for the disruption in semiconductors uh, and the cascading impact that that would have on the global economy. Mm. Um, and then you factor that in, you know, what happens to, um, you know, security of uh, maritime transport. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but, you know, if the, if, the, if the United States Navy's, you know, Primacy is is damaged. Uh, if faith in the you know free flow of goods around the world, I mean, is something we simply just take for granted right now. Um, and you know, can you imagine if 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 every major canal had a had a a, a huge container ship go sideways in it simultaneously? Mm. You'd get some idea of the disruptions you'd have in the global supply chain uh, were a Taiwan scenario to go hot. So yeah. So, so we're talking. We're we're still on the topic of rational calculus and, and assessments here, and I hear what you're saying in terms of peace through strength. Mm -hmm. But um, the question that like springs to my mind when when you say that, Paul, is um, I have noticed a a very real reticence in most, especially the U.S. Navy, since we're at the Naval War College, of um, you know, they talk about the Chinese missile forces like they're this impenetrable shield and so bad that uh, the former CNO Richardson said you could, couldn't use the term A2AD anymore because he wanted to get it out of the get it out of the mindset. But but there is a very real fear of I've had several naval officers that naval officers have told me as like, oh, well, you know, there's no way we could ever do an amphibious assault again. And maybe they're just messing with me because I'm a Marine. But I've, I've also heard that in terms of there's this mindset block of like, oh, no, 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 there's no way we could fight China. It's like, well, there is a way. It's just it, the risk is, is very high and very costly. But, but do you see this same type of, um, uh, you know, mental block or reticence in, in terms of uh, military thinking about what our strategy could be towards China? Well, it's definitely, to your point, it, it would be much more challenging. Uh, in, the, in the future. However, that's why you have to invest in the technologies. You have to keep the defense industrial base healthy. You have to really go to next generation. You have to, like, for example, in the hypersonics, we need to get those uh, fielded. We need to have the latest technologies. We need to take advantage. I, I had come up with an idea I posed to my class about putting hypersonic missiles in the mountainous areas of Taiwan, not on the, the western side, which is flat because the mountain side is uh, very hostile, very hard to get into. And it's a, it's a great place to uh, put, you know, store weapons or hide weapons or things of that nature. I, we just have to think more creatively about those types of issues. But um, ideally, um, you don't, the bottom line is you don't want to have a war with China. Okay, mm -hmm. that's that's the bottom line. And you know, how do you prevent that? Well, you, you maintain your strength and you, you maintain your commitments, you maintain your alliance system. You maintain your defense industrial base, and you definitely work on next generation technologies. Uh, you don't become complacent, and you explain to the public this is what the cost is. This is what's entailed or what's required in order to do that, because it's much better than the alternative. We don't want to have a war, and also with the nuclear factor, with the possibility of escalation, you, that's another reason we won't, don't want to have a U.S.-China conflict. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Colin, what are you? What are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, I mean, I I think we have. I mean, to use the S and P terminology, we have a profound ends means mismatch right now, uh, where we're increasingly staking out a hawkish position nominally, uh, but we're not spending in a way that's commensurate with those stated ambitions. And I actually take a an even darker view of the current situation uh, than my colleague. Uh, 
in the sense that I, I think we have problems not only with capability in the, in the future, but we have profound problems with capacity in the present. The ability to crank out uh, not so much ships, but munitions. Mm-hmm. And these are advanced munitions. We've seen a sort of a precursor version of this in, in Ukraine, where the United States has lots of capabilities it could in theory provide to its partners to influence a battlefield outcome. But when we hit, hit the orders button, nothing comes out of the pipe for 18 plus months. And um, the strains that we would be put on the US defense industrial base in a conflict with China would be orders of magnitude greater. Um, I do not see us getting healthy on the defense industrial base. I see a lot of hand wringing and not a lot of spending. And there are a whole series of reasons why that's the case. I think the most significant being headline defense spending. I would agree with Professor Smith that that we need to talk about major step changes up. Um, When we used to measure defense spending and defense burden in the Cold War, we talked about in terms of percent GDP allocated to defense purposes. At the peak of the Reagan buildup, we were in the 6% range. um, And that was racing an opponent that we now know was essentially falling off its bar stool, right? I do not understand how we think we can raise a more, far more economically dynamic, far more technologically developed, far more focused opponent in the PRC and get away with a flat line under 3% of GDP, half the defense burden we were bearing during the Reagan buildup. This may not be popular in American domestic political circles, either on the right or the left, but there needs to be sort of a lapel shaking moment uh, where the American people are confronted with this magnitude of the problem. And I agree with my colleagues, anything is better than sleepwalking into a conflict that destroys one or both of the combatants and maybe the international system to boot. Uh, but the best way to do that is to hit the order button now. Uh, we cannot afford to wait until the date of conflict to decide to spend seriously on the defense industrial base. Um, these are multi-billion dollar, 18 to 24 month lag type problems. So mm. if you want to produce more nuclear submarines, you've got to spend tens of billions of dollars right now, not on submarines, but on the defense industrial base. If you want to build munitions that can meet or exceed the range capabilities of the Chinese military, you've got to spend on that. And, and we're not spending enough. Um, mm. I, a smaller sort of inside baseball point is the way we're spending on weapons for Ukraine uh, contributes to this problem. A defense producer looks at an order that is for a short term and for a finite number of munitions and can't decide whether to make a long-term investment in a production line or not. We need to be sending signals in base budget procurement, which indicate open-ended commitments to much, much higher levels of production capacity. So we need to be telling the primes, the defense contractors that, hey, we're going to be buying prism missiles from now into the foreseeable future. Not that we want a hundred next year and we'll talk about it later because that's that's again inhibiting indirectly the adjustments we need to see in the defense industrial base. But bottom line, I I think we've wasted the better part of a year of the Ukraine war, which we could have been using uh, as the United States did with the fall of France in 1940 to get ready for what's coming. and, and that's, I think, the most serious problem we're facing right now is a sort of an unreal uh, non-preparation for the magnitude of the challenge we face. Hmm. Okay. Uh, Dex, go to you next in this one. Um, well, I, I want to raise a, raise a question for my colleagues. I mean, there's been a lot of talk lately um, about trying to peg, uh, you know, inside the Beltway and outside of trying to, trying to peg uh, uh, the go day for... Uh, you know, the, the China, China's attack on, on Taiwan, um, a, a popular one being, uh, being 2027, um, the, the 100th centenary of the founding of the, uh, of the People's Liberation Army, mm-hmm. as, as the, you know, Xi Jinping talks about it as, as, as the, the, the goal point there of that centenary is to have a world-class military. And the idea being that, well, that, that would be, okay, we have a world-class military now, we're gonna use it. Um, I think that's mis- misguided thinking. I don't think Xi Jinping makes his decisions based on you know, celebrating anniversaries, um, nor, 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 does he, nor does he have particularly uh, 
stringent definitions of what makes for a world-class military. Um, but there, there, there's that, there's, there's discussions about, well, I think um, like late, late 2024, early 2025 will be a likely window because the assumption is that there will be so much uh, political upheaval in the United States that will be, you know, so distracted that the Chinese can, you know, can, can uh, take Taiwan as a, as a fait accompli. And there's been a lot of this speculation in open source uh, and, and some talk among uh, even U.S. military officers about this, um, you know, speculating on these dates. And I think that's, um, uh, that's, a, that's a dangerous approach uh, to take. Uh, but at the same time, we have to be, be watchful for, you know, what, what are the things that will push Xi uh, to act? Uh, I think most of those things are, would be pretty easy to figure out. Um, they would re require uh, pretty significant changes of what's going on on Taiwan itself, rather than some sort of abstraction. Uh, but at the same time, you know, what, what would a, this sort of clear long-term, uh, you know, we talk, we talk about deterrence, you know, about the clear, credible communication of, of capacity, uh, of will uh, and capabilities um, to uh, prevent a would-be uh, aggressor from, from taking offensive action. Um, but at the same time, you run the risk of pushing an adversary through a, uh, through a window of opportunity of, of their own perception. You mentioned this earlier with, with the Kaiser or to the Japanese in 1941. Um, you know, how, how, long does, how long does the edge have? And, and Colin talked about this too as well, is this, this uh, all these anxieties in China about potentially, um, you know, we're coming up on peak China where we have population decline, rapidly aging population, uh, economic slowdown, uh, declining, uh, uh, in, increasing insecurities and a lot of in a lot of crucial resources, um, all sort of bringing an end to the to the last forty years of, of the China miracle, uh, and that China's got to act on the peak of its power to achieve the greatest extent of its national rejuvenation that it could possibly achieve, which would be, you know, uh, in the in the collective mindset of the Chinese people is, is the reintegration of Taiwan. Um, you know, it just does the con convergence of all of those insecurities um, and, you know, driven by an even more confrontational approach from the United States, you know, is that, is that in, in and of itself a formula for war? So you have to, you know, are we trying to, this, this dance of deterrence, how do you actually accomplish it these China. You have to understand what the rational calculus is um, of your adversary. You have to avoid mirror imaging, um, but you also have to avoid um, um, the, 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 our, our, our tendency to take very sort of um, apply very simple sort of simplistic tropes to discussions of, of, of China and Chinese decision making um, in the U.S. Colin, you want to take a stab at that one? Well, I mean, so I, I'd like to build on it. I mean, we, so we've been talking about sort of values of the object in the, you know, Taiwan, the U.S.-China relationship. Um, I would bring in the other thing that's sort of bleeding in uh, to the news cycle, which is the value of Ukraine. And here I want to talk about the extrinsic value of Ukraine, not what Ukraine is for Ukraine's sake, but how does it relate to the problem we're talking about? I think if you're asking how to deter China from making a military move to seize Taiwan, probably one of the most important variables is how Ukraine turns out. And if Ukraine turns out as some sort of messy win for Russia, I think it's a blinking green light uh, for Xi Jinping relative to Taiwan, holding everything else constant. Um, if on the other hand, uh, Russia is seen to lose uh, badly, uh, lose in what it seeks to acquire an irredentist aggression, lose in terms of permanent exclusion from uh, the international order, growth of NATO, et cetera, et cetera. If it is a big loss uh, for uh, Putin, then I think uh, this is a, a major deterrent to Xi Jinping waking up one morning and saying, I think it'd be a good idea to seize um, Taiwan by force. So I think 
much as we would like to compartment these, these issues, uh, they all do sort of bleed into each other. Um, I think you're hearing on the news cycle from time to time this notion that money spent on Ukraine is money that would be better spent on preparing for the China challenge. I think that this is fundamentally wrong. It misperceives the nature of the current problem. Money spent today in Ukraine to defeat Russian ambitions is in fact contributing to stabilization, my opinion, in uh, the Taiwan Straits. So I think we would be well served as an American public and defense establishment to continue very vigorous support um, for the Ukrainians and resist urges to go to some sort of negotiated peace too early in Ukraine. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, Paul? Uh, just on the deterrence piece, uh, Dex brought this up. Um, uh, per Thomas Schelling, uh, deterrence uh, involves threat, plus it involves assurance. That is, you assure the party that you're trying to deter that having been deterred, they their interests will not be degraded. And so this is where the I think the, the sort of U.S. politicians meeting with the president of, of Taiwan becomes a little bit problematic because it's this um, it it degrades the sense of assurance that we're trying to give to the PRC this, that says we're not trying to change uh, the goalposts here. We're trying to we're, we're keeping the rules the same. And I think uh, U.S. political leaders, of course, they can do what they want, of course, but it might be uh, helpful if we don't do that as much in this sort of bravado manner because it provokes PRC. And I think it also gives the PRC an excuse to run exercises around Taiwan uh, that they can sort of practice uh, when they might do something. And regarding a specific date, uh, it could be next week. <laughs> I think we have to be careful about getting too caught up in narratives. And because, uh, frankly, if if I was in Beijing's position, I would put out a narrative like that so that you would become complacent. And then I would strike at a time you're not expecting. So we yeah. have to be careful about that. So uh, in the time we have left, I guess it's uh, probably good for a, for a wrap-up um, question here. Um, for, for Xi, am I pronouncing that right, Dex? Xi? So, yeah, yeah, Xi, okay. <laughs> I pronounced it wrong the other day. Dex like, no, 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 it's, it's like this. Um, <laughs> but um, so for his rational – and I'm coming at this question from the perspective of for an authoritarian regime, the number one thing is regime survival. So how closely tied, where does, where does he go from here? Can he survive Communist Party maintaining mainland China without taking Taiwan? Or is Taiwan a risk that potentially puts regime survival at risk for him? So where does Xi go from here? And that'll be our, our, our wrap-up question. So that, that and final thoughts. Uh, Dex, go ahead. We'll start with you. Yeah. Um... We're, 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 unfortunately, we're dealing with a deeply insecure person uh, in Xi Jinping. He's, he's got a he's got a, a fraught uh, personal history, um, which I think you know. Even though he is he has an unprecedented level of power, which we haven't seen in China, we, we probably haven't uh, haven't seen in China since since the imperial period. I mean, he, even under Mao. Uh, the the apparatus of state control was no, was nowhere near where it is right now. Um, so in terms of actual wielded power, um, Xi Jinping is 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 one of the most powerful leaders in in Chinese history. But uh, that doesn't make him doesn't seem to be making him that much more secure, uh, which is which is deeply deeply concerning. Um, he also, unfortunately, has an obsession with history, um, and that that could be a terrible thing in the sense that if he feels that his position, like you know, people talk about Putin thinking that he's you know, the the only role models he has are Peter the Great and Stalin, uh, that he has to achieve this sort of you know, um, sort of uh, historical destiny. Um, by reversing the the humiliations of the of the fall of the of the uh, of the Soviet Union, that if Xi Jinping is motivated along those lines, that 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 the bar for him is set that in during his leadership he's going he's got to achieve this this great end state, uh, otherwise he's going to fail the test of history. But he also is the one that gets to write history uh, in China, um, and I think there. My, my, my hope is that 
these these historical milestones that he set for himself are are ambiguous enough that um, you know perpetuating the status quo when it comes to Taiwan is a is a win. Um, you know, Taiwan not being part of China has been immensely beneficial to the success story uh, of the, of mainland China. Um, the economic wherewithal, the the investment, the the uh, the talent that that crossed the strait from Taiwan to support China's economic miracle over the last forty years is absolutely indispensable. And if Mao Zedong had gotten his hands on on Taiwan in nineteen fifty, none of that would have been there. It would have been a it would have been a wrecked uh, backwater of of, of partitioned sugar plantations um, instead of uh, the, the the vibrant economy. Um, and you know, productive capacity, financial uh, wherewithal, what have you. Dex, do, do they know that on some level? Um, it, it, it's a it's a hard it's a hard conversation to have. Um, but I think there's also a historical legacy in China that uh, failures along the periphery, you know, at least in in the 19th century, uh, dramatically undermined the legitimacy of the regime. Uh, and that, you know, maintaining the status quo is better than losing a war. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the expectations that have been set uh, in the mainland for the degree of military success are very, very high. Um, and I think they're unrealistic. Um, so I hopefully, hopefully the regime knows that. So where does Xi Jinping go from here? Um, hopefully quietly. Okay, fair enough. Paul, we'll go to you next. Okay, uh, Xi Jinping, I, um, he has, uh, despite all that Dex said, which I acknowledge, uh, he has emerged as a world statesman. We've seen him recently with uh, in Moscow. We've seen uh, China emerging as a global power. And so I think uh, China has uh, interests in Europe, in Africa, Latin America, etc., so I think, ironically, some of these external interests will constrain uh, possibly some decisions that she might have made otherwise. <laughs> I think, uh, I, I, first, I, I think that China does not want a violent conclusion of the Taiwan issue. They would love to have it solved. And I, I, th I think they use the military to try to use uh, exert coercive diplomacy to try to bring about that result. I don't think they actually want to attack Taiwan now. Of course, you have to assume the worst. Um, but I, I think we need to emphasize that, that uh, China sees itself as a as a as a world power. Uh, it has been stated in the media. I don't know if this is true that, that China helped constrain Moscow's decision making regarding tactical nuclear. Uh, weapon use in Ukraine. I don't know if that's true or not, but I have read about it. I've heard about it. Uh, so I, I think there, because of all these external obligations that China has, I think it would constrain some of the more uh, or uh, cataclysmic options vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan. I think uh, I, I'm hopeful, at least in that regard. Having said that, I still want that $1 trillion defense budget. <laughs> and I, want, I want the strongest military in the world. <laughs> Thank you. Which is why you won't get elected, as you said. That's Paul. right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Colin, we'll end with you. Uh, yeah, no, I, so, you know, where from here for the PRC leadership? I mean, I, I think there, there are several ways to sort of address this. One of them to pick up on, on Paul's point is, um, the calculus of Xi in this in this period will hinge in part on how unified or or disunited the Western coalition appears. And I think one of the positive externalities of the Western response to the Ukraine has been increased solidarity in the Western bloc, that is Europeans and Americans, with respect not only to the Russia problem, but by extension and almost by derivation to the uh, the, the China challenge. Now, here's where the twist comes. You have someone like Emmanuel Macron coming and singing off key and inviting uh, the Chinese to broker peace in Ukraine. That would appear to send the opposite signal to the Chinese that they could, in theory, wage aggressive war uh, in the Pacific and potentially split the United States from Europe. 
So I think, you know, part of this deterrent equation is also sort of solidarity in the West. I, I think there are sort of like two futures we want to avoid with Xi Jinping's regime. One is that he wakes up one day and he feels like the new Bismarck, right? That he's going to do this sort of national unification that will cement his his uh, legacy. So that, that's point one, and we've discussed that at some length. The second is that he doesn't wake up and feel he's the Argentine junta uh, and feels that things are coming unglued domestically. Therefore, to distract attention, to renew my legitimacy, I have to do something that's super risky. And what was interesting in my recent travel uh, to the region to Taiwan and this, this past January, uh, the significant theme that emerged from, from officials was concern that a weak China might be the trigger, a weak Chinese regime might be the trigger for violence in the straits. Um, so that, that's another sort of future we want to avoid. Um, at the outset, you know, the, the third scenario, the sort of 1914 thing, hey, we're peaking. This is the time where we have the greatest advantage. Let's lock it in. That's hard to disentangle from the Bismarck moment, but uh, that's, you know, aggressive war. Uh, as a possibility. Interesting. All right. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. It has been, uh, it's, it's topical and it's uh, informational as always. Uh, I learned a lot from doing these podcasts, so I appreciate your willingness. And I know our students and our listeners will, uh, will definitely uh, be, uh, have their professional discourse raised from this. So thank you once again, and we will see everybody next time on Profiles in Strategy. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you.